This recording was brought to you by Media One Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. All right. Well, uh, thanks for sticking with us through to the end of the day for the coveted 4.45 panel time slot. Um, uh, This panel is called How to Scale. Um, You know, late last week, I uh, was at another conference and um, led a panel discussion. And when I came home from work that night, um, my fiance said, well, uh, what was your panel about? And I um, I hesitated for a moment because it was so well. Uh, I, I didn't really want to tell her, and and when I when I hesitated, um, she said, uh, "Was it about how to rock your lady's world in the bedroom?" Um, which made it all the more awkward when I told her the topic was pragmatic analytics. <laughs> um, so in thinking about it, I've decided that instead of talking about how to scale, we're going to talk about how to rock your lady's world in the bedroom. <laughs> Uh, so I'd like my panelists to introduce themselves, <laughs> tell a little bit about their, uh, their company and their uh, favorite uh, sex act toy or position. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you, you want to no, no, start? No, 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 off to you, not ready. <laughs> uh, Dan, okay, seriously, uh, two of my favorite companies uh, uh, of the last few years, um, Songkick and SoundCloud. Um, Dan, why don't you uh, start us off and tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Dan Crow. I am the CTO of Songkick. For those who don't know Songkick, we're a London-based startup. Uh, we are the number two provider of live music data on the web. Uh, we one day hope to be the number one. Um, basically, if you tell us who your favorite bands are, we will make sure that you never miss a concert when they come and play for you. Uh, and we are uh, growing strongly at the moment, and uh, scaling is something that we're uh, extremely interested in. Um, my background is I came out of Google. I joined Sunkick in January, um, and so I and I've done a whole bunch of startups in the past out here in the Bay Area. So um, I'm. Uh, very interested in taking some of the experiences of uh, extremely high scale at Google and applying them into a startup that is uh, growing fast. Eric is my name, Eric Walfors. Uh, I'm co-founder and CTO currently of a company called SoundCloud, which you might know. How many people know SoundCloud here? Oh, yes. Okay, uh, this is great because I've been here for three consecutive years and I've been on panels these three years and the first year was about maybe two people who knew us, the second year a bit more and this year it seems good. So we're scaling, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, and I'm Tom Conrad, um, uh, I'm CTO at Pandora and uh, I'm the one up here that doesn't have an awesome accent. Um, <laughs> let's see, um, so I, I think uh, there's there's a, a lot to talk about under this this topic of scaling. We're certainly going to spend some time talking about kind of the the technical dimensions of scaling. How do you build infrastructure that keeps up with demand as users come? Um, but uh, uh, you know, before you even get to that stage, um, there's just the, the challenge of of scaling usage up, finding users in the first place, and um, you know, both uh, Songkick and SoundCloud are a little bit like like rock bands are overnight successes, many years in the making. <laughs> um, and uh, 
I've noticed just looking at some of the, the publicly available data about, about Songkick that, that they've really, you know, had, they were on a nice little growth rate for the last few years, and then towards the end of last year, they, it seemed like there was just a real inflection point, and, and web traffic picked up considerably. And I thought, Dan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's driving that and, and some of the lessons that you've learned. Um, well, the short answer to that is no, I can't. Um, <laughs> I mean, to some extent, um, we're a little cagey about exactly what we say about why we think the growth has happened. Um, I actually think the more interesting thing is what do you do when you see growth? Because growth is both, obviously, from a business perspective, a great thing, but from a technology and, a, and an organizational perspective, kind of scary, um, particularly when it suddenly happens to you and you're kind of not exactly caught unawares, but you've been trying for a long time and then suddenly you seem to have hit the magic formula. Um, but I can talk a little bit about some of the things that we think are, are happening there. Um, obviously, one of the things that we've been doing, we've been going for nearly four years now, um, is trying to figure out um, what combination of features really appeal to the user. What's the, what's the core set of things that really get users excited, get them coming back to the site, getting, get them you know, really engaged with what we're doing. And I think that's sort of the meta lesson here is to, is to persevere, um, to be willing to try different angles, um, to not get too caught up in your preconceptions of what success will look like um, and what a great product is but rather to um, be prepared to experiment and let the users tell you when you've hit the right combination of things. Um, what's interesting about Songkick um, is that I think we've had a fairly clear and consistent vision right from day, day one when the company was founded about the general sphere, the, the, the general problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and we're still trying to solve that same problem that we had from the first day that the company was founded. Um, but the details are so important, and, and what makes you successful is not kind of the big idea. It's the execution and the detail of the execution that really makes the difference. So, you know, for three years, we basically tried various combinations of features, various combinations of UI, and, uh, you know, all the other pieces that go to make a great product. And suddenly, we, at the end of, as you said, uh, Tom, at the end of the last year, we found some formula which suddenly saw us um, start to climb that hockey stick that everyone, you know, talks about. Um, so, we're obviously very excited, um, and we believe we've now kind of figured out what those pieces are um, and you can look at our site you can kind of you know sort of see if you've uh, followed our progress you can see some of the uh, evolutionary changes we've made but it's really important to listen to your users uh, they'll tell you when you've got it right um, and you know when you start to see it happen um, you you pour gas on the fire right I mean the moment you start to see that growth go um, you, you've got to build on that success um, and drive through and start to um, kind of let it grow and, and really take off. Um, I will say that one of the things that we believe that we've been seeing this year, although this is actually really hard to measure in practice, is um, genuine viral growth. Um, and I think that's a combination of just more integration into social networks um, and, and leveraging the power of social networks, but also it ultimately comes down to having a great product. If you get the product right, then you sort of automatically get viral growth in the environment we're in now. Um, and that's been very exciting to see, um, although it's actually really hard to be sure um, exactly what the element of virality is and sort of the, the coefficient of virality of, of your growth. So that's something that we're, we're continuing to look at. One of the things <coughs> I've always admired about, about Dan's company is that you know, the team really came together passionate about solving this, this concert-going problem. And um, 
but I, you know, I think it didn't have the kind of growth that 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 they wanted from day one, and and we live in this sort of era of the pivot, where where you know you're a concert site one day and you're an online spaghetti reel, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> seller the next, and and I I always admired that that the team stuck with their original product vision, the, the thing that they were sort of so passionate about that caused them to start the company in the first place, but were always willing to kind of. Um, uh, iterate on the details. I mean, I've talked to Ian about you know five different approaches um, to uh, uh, to bringing this concert information to the to the market. They've tried them all, and and, and a lot of times, um, in my experience, and it sounds like in Dan's too, it really is. A, it's about getting the dial set just right. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's so much about the details. Um, if you've got a compelling sort of overall problem you're trying to solve. It really comes down to the details, and those those matter tremendously. And, and the quality of your execution is what determines your success, not the quality of the ideas that you have. You know, Eric, SoundCloud has gotten so popular that that I guess I had forgotten that that last year just a handful of hands went up. So so there really is. You've had this tremendous year. Um, I guess I take it for granted that everyone knows what SoundCloud is today. But um, w what's happened? So yeah, because I, since I forgot to mention that for the people who don't know, SoundCloud is the best way on the web today to share any piece of audio. So it's really any kind of sound from anywhere to everywhere across all kinds of platforms and devices and apps. So that's SoundCloud in a nutshell. Um, what happened this year, I mean, inter to your question um, about what drives the growth of SoundCloud, I think there's a number of things that drives our growth, but I think maybe the most interesting one is sort of our platform and our platform vision that we've been executing very hard on sort of the previous year. So, uh, and, and there are many different levels to that, but but SoundCloud is essentially just a platform. It's, it's, it's super simple as a concept, and it's really sort of essentially um, purely uh, incarnated, let's say, in our platform and in our API. So uh, our API is super simple. You can upload and share um, pieces of audio, and you can sort of get audio um, from from it. So so that's what it is, and that's enabled hundreds of apps. I think we're closing in now on 200 apps to to do stuff on top of our platform. Um, and that, I think, is kind of the most interesting driver of growth because it, it's sort of every app is unique, is a multiplier uh, of the community and drives sort of new interesting um, behavior and new users that come from it from different angles. So I think that's like the most interesting as aspect of last year's growth kind of up until now. And what we see is we, we're going to put more and more energy into the platform. In fact, like. We're even basing our own applications in the meantime on the API, and we're, we're looking to transition all of our own sort of uh, official apps to use only our public API. So that's that's something we're putting a lot of effort into in terms of scaling. Dan, you, you have a public API as well, right? Is that part of, 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 of the story for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I would strongly agree with what Eric's saying, that um, you get a sort if you can, um, really build a strong development community around your API. Um, that not only allows you to reach users you wouldn't otherwise reach yourself because you can't do everything, particularly as a small startup, um, but it actually has this really interesting multiplier effect, I think that's exactly the right phrase, that allows you to um, 
it, it sort of self seeds and it, it, it not just it not only grows your user base, it grows your brand. Um, and, and developers are particularly key to success for a small startup. Um, and the ability to grow your brand within the development community is really critical. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, a public API is a uh, you know a well well a well designed public API is really important. Um, and it's something that we've had sort of be, we've been working on. Um, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that our API really matured towards the end of last year. We put an awful lot of work into it in the sort of third and quarter, fourth quarter of last year, um, and uh, you know that was around the time that our traffic growth really started to take off. And I think that's—I mean, I don't think that's a direct cause, but I don't think it's entirely coincidental either. So yeah, I think APIs are really important. Um, and one of the interesting things, um, you know, uh, thinking about the topic of this panel is that um, I actually think that this notion of having a public API on which you build your own service is actually a really strong technical approach that can help you scale. It's a great discipline um, for producing a truly scalable and robust system for you for you internally. Um, you know, it's the, the classic valley phrase of eating your own dog food, but it, it actually is meaningful. Um, and I think it makes a, it makes a huge difference. Uh, and that's something that we're actually actively looking at at the moment. Um, before we move on to tech, just one other thing I'm curious about is, is since, you know, we're not just technology companies, um, you know, specifically, all, you know, we're all part of this music ecosystem. Um, I'm curious about, uh, you know, um, the artists that you interact with. Um, you know, is that part of the scaling story as well? You know, are they, do you find that, that there's a, a kind of symbiotic opportunity between the the artists who want people to come to their shows or people to hear their their compositions um, are they using their you know their voice um, to to make people familiar with with your services is that a, a meaningful part of how you're growing yeah absolutely I mean that that is the key driver behind SoundCloud's growth so that that's basically the biggest factor of course yeah the the network of the artists and the labels and yeah all the other people sharing audio that, that that's the core of it yeah we, we come from a slightly different aspect uh, sort of perspective in that we're we are very fan facing. We're not a, our primary mission is to serve the fan, to help people find music, um, not to serve artists. Um, but so one, one of the you know early on we found that you know we got a lot of um, word of mouth from fans saying hey you know we love Songkick uh, and, and recommending to their friends. Uh, but what we have seen is that this sort of organically there started to be interest from in the artists as well because um, as our data sources have become better, um, artists are very interested in um, using our data um, and because we have a public API they can. Um, and in fact we've really started to see that as a, a big future growth area for our company. Um, we recently launched a Facebook app specifically for artists so that they could embed um, Songkick event data um, onto their own Facebook pages and that's starting to have some real success and we're starting to see some word of mouth coming from the artists and the managers which is great. Um, so this is interesting because that's an area that you know we have not been in before but we're definitely moving strongly into because we see that specifically the artists being being a big part of the future growth for us. Um, so, uh, so, so, so changing um, directions a little bit, let's talk about um, the sort of technological approaches you've taken to scaling. I mean, I, I know there are people in this room who, um, you know, uh, sit up at night worrying about the about the onrush of traffic that might come and, and, and want to understand how, you know, companies like SoundCloud and SongKick have 
have tackled that. Um, maybe just set the stage, though, a little bit first before we talk about it. Can you tell us a little bit about your infrastructure, the, the kinds of technology you use, maybe if you're in the cloud or you're, you're more traditional hosting or you own your own infrastructure, just sort of, you know, set the, set the canvas for us. Yeah. So from sort of the infrastructure side of it, we're about, I would say, 50% cloud, 50% sort of bare metal in a data center. Uh, so yeah, that's from the infrastructure side. From the application side, we're more and more increasingly sort of a service-oriented architecture behind the scenes. So it's like different services talking to each other, uh, yeah, delivering a very coherent experience to the users in the end. Uh, but that that's sort of a fairly recent development on our end. Uh, in terms of data management, I believe data management is probably the biggest scaling issue usually. At the moment, we're kind of at the point where we've migrated some of our data to more specific data stores from a sort of core relational store where we have like a cluster of MySQL databases, pretty standard sort of web stack. Um, we have one store that's uh, Cassandra-based. It's a NoSQL database column-oriented store, which is doing our feed infrastructure. And that's like, I can really recommend if you're going to do feeds, uh, and, uh, like any sort of dashboard feed type um, solution, Cassandra is a, is a really great fit for that. Uh, so yeah, feel free to, to hit me up later on if you need any more info on that. We also have a uh, an engineering blog uh, where we're describing some of the th uh, decisions we've taken around that uh, recently, backstage.soundcloud.com. Um, from, yeah, on the data management side, what we're doing now is we're building out a, a sort of a distributed file system for logging, so like Hadoop. Uh, which I can also recommend. Uh, I heard some, some good stuff from you there, so some very reassuring words. Uh, I'm a bit scared about that going forward because it's a big change, obviously, moving to more of a log-based um, data management um, approach. Uh, yeah, on the cloud side, I think one interesting thing, um, since you know you would maybe expect that storage and streaming is very core to what we're doing interesting thing is we're actually outsourcing that still so we do all of our storage of all those uh, asset uh, data still in the amazon cloud uh, it's working really well for us with uh, numbers or a couple of occasions we've sort of evaluated uh, whether it would make sense to do the storage ourselves we've decided to stay in the cloud uh, it's fantastic uh, s3 is really great um, for the delivery of that audio, we're still using Akamai, uh, like a content delivery network. Um, we're, we're talking to, to a lot of them, obviously, at the moment we're using Akamai. Uh, I can really recommend that approach because it, it will keep you lightweight and agile if you're going to do sort of audio streaming at scale. Uh, I can recommend that setup. Even at our scale, it makes sense. So that's um, that's pretty cool, and for that as well, come talk to me. I'm happy to share some insights around that. So, yeah. do you worry at all on the on the streaming side that you know eventually you will get to the scale where um, you can probably command, say, bandwidth pricing in particular at the you know at a at a level that's that's not far off from what some of these CDN providers are able to negotiate, and mm -hmm. so. For them to make money, that means them charging you margin on top of a price you could get directly from the transit providers. Um, but the but the challenge it would seem is that you know when you're pushing you know 
100 gigabits of traffic or whatever, and you've never shipped a, a byte yourself, it's, that's a really hard transition to make all in one gulp. Mm -hmm. um, you just talk a little bit about how you think about like cloud or, or CDN addiction and, and, and mm -hmm. how you break the habit when maybe the time comes. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not particularly scared of it. We, have, we were actually more scared like half a year or like yeah, a little over half a year ago. So we actually built out the infrastructure in the data center to be able to handle that stuff. But then we sort of came back to the, um, uh, to the content delivery uh, guys and kind of like sliced the price in three or something like that. And mm -hmm. so the, the market for those networks is so competitive that it's almost on par with transit costs at the moment. So I would really like recommend to work with the CDN partner. And, and really it's from sort of the computer science angle on that, it's a relatively trivial problem to solve. It's just kind of painful. So yeah, trivial but painful is how I would sum it up. So it, it would probably be relatively painful, but uh, moving out of that. But um, the nice thing is you can do it sort of gradually. So you could we could switch off like 20% of the traffic and do that. And so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm yeah. not too scared of that. Dan, want to tell us a little bit about your your architecture, just to, to level set. Sure. Um, so um, we're basically Ruby on Rails is the core technology that we use. Uh, we have MySQL on the back end, um, and then uh, you know a fairly typical CSS, HTML, um, JavaScript client side stuff. Um, what's interesting is that Rails uh, tends to it has this model of being a fairly monolithic application, or at least it's very easy to fall into that pattern. Um, and we're currently, uh, from the start of this year, been transitioning to a service-oriented architecture where we basically split this large monolithic application up into smaller components that can scale horizontally um, and are easier to manage. Uh, and so we're coming towards the end of that transition right now. Um, and that's do, you, do you also call it the monorail? <laughs> That's what Twitter calls it. We call it that as well. Uh, we don't, but we could. <laughs> um, uh, so, and, and we've, um, you know, uh, we have some MongoDB, which is another of these, uh, it's a document-oriented database, which allows us to do a lot of the caching uh, within our infrastructure. Um, we're actually, uh, now that we've sort of completed the split up into components, our next step is to um, look at our data storage architecture because that remains our sort of last monolithic piece now of the architecture. Um, and we're looking at uh, ways to split that um, and also probably move at least some, if not all, of our data storage to into the NoSQL world. Um, we're looking at Redis, uh, which is a, a shardable key value storage system. Um, looks promising, but we haven't made final decisions around that yet. Um, one of the interesting things, um, is um, uh, infrastructure though. So we currently have our own data center and, and host all of our own uh, hardware. Um, that's not quite true. We have a little bit of our APIs actually hosted in um, EC2, but, but our primary application is within uh, our own data, structure, uh, uh, data center. Um, and we're looking hard at moving to the cloud, which is actually kind of the opposite way around from the way a lot of startups go. A lot of startups will start out on something like EC2 and then later on move on to their own, their own infrastructure. We're actually considering doing the opposite of that. What's the rationale behind that? Um, uh, it's a number of things. Um, uh, one thing that's pushing us fairly hard is that our traffic is extremely international. 
Um, we see about 50% of our traffic from the US. Um, the rest is from primarily from Europe, um, and uh, although we're seeing growth outside of the US and Europe as well. Um, and so the ability to have the same software stack running um, in data centers around the world is actually pretty nice from a latency perspective. Um, uh, another piece is that um, as we've seen a lot of growth in traffic this year, it's become increasingly unpredictable. Um, and we're seeing, um, particularly around major product, product launches, um, real spikes in traffic. Um, those are both unpredictable. <laughs> we don't know how big the spikes are going to be, um, which makes it difficult to provision hardware for, um, and also tend to be temporary. So what we see is sort of, you see the sort of classic, classic J curve, but within that, you're seeing these kind of big spikes, a drop, and then it, the, the basic traffic growth continues, um, which means in order to t cope with these spikes, if you can have a hope of predicting them. You have to over-provision hardware, which then goes idle you know, a month later, and it'll take you know, three or four months for the underlying growth curve to meet that again, which is actually a tremendously inefficient way of doing it. Um, and so the elastic nature of the cloud um, uh, definitely has some attractions for us in that scenario. Um, and then finally, um, we don't want to build expertise in building infrastructure. Um, we'd much rather our expertise is in building great products for our users. Um, we have recently hired our first system ad admin um, <laughs> after three and a half years. Um, and by the way, that was not because we didn't need one earlier. It was because it took us three and a half years to find a really good sysadmin in London. So there you go. Nice lesson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that may be reason enough to stand, go to the cloud. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, hiring the second one of those guys. We, yeah. we, we refer to him, by the way, as the magic unicorn because we didn't think he existed for a long time. Uh, I thought we, it was the horn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so just building the the uh, expertise in infrastructure i mean it's not our core business our core business is about helping users find really great live music um uh, not in building the sort of infrastructure that amazon or google have built um and we're quite happy to um let those guys be the experts in that field you know rely on their expertise and and spend our time worrying about the things that we can uniquely add value to um, that said, <laughs> we haven't made a final decision about the move to the cloud. It's something we're still actively considering, and um, you know, we may decide to stick on our own uh, infrastructure. There are arguments the other way as well. I think I have a couple of arguments for that, but <laughs> can you say that for later? No, 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 no. <laughs> I actually, I would. Uh, I mean, you said you you sort of split fifty fifty between bare metal mm. infrastructure that you own and and the cloud. Sort of, how do you think about that split? Which direction do you think it's going? I mean, you said you're you think the that CDNs are a great solution, S3 is a great product. Hmm. Do you think you'll maintain about that same split or, or yeah, talk I mean, about the evolution you see? I think it's uh, it's mainly about using exactly the right tool for the right job. So bare metal is great to serve like a really responsive web app and it's easier to, to sort of wire up to do that than to do it in the cloud. So if you do it in the cloud, uh, you're gonna have to deal with latency, slow disk IO and stuff like that, which is kind of, an unnecessary problem to ha have uh, at our scale. So it's, yeah, it really depends. But it's also a cost thing in the end. I mean, uh, like we, we, we save a lot of cost basically on, on a few parameters. I mean, one, one sort of hidden thing about the cloud is that outbound, inbound traffic cost is a sort of huge, I mean, the, the cost for that is, is just gigantic compared to anything you get. I mean, we're hooked up straight to the AM6 now, so we're basically peering with our traffic, and that traffic is free, essentially. So 
um, a lot of people tend to miss that sort of aspect of going to the cloud that there are sort of these gatekeeping things where they charge ridiculous amounts so and there is a huge lock-in effect as well depending on of course how you piece your things together but uh, a few of the sort of sort of value added things in for example the amazon cloud that creates a very big lock-in effect which could be dangerous so i'd like to, like to talk about one aspect of that particularly which is um latency it's really interesting that um you know, a characteristic of all cloud systems is that they have um both slow um machine host to host uh, connections but particularly unpredictable ones right so it's you know you could be looking at something that typically takes you know tens of milliseconds but can spike out to you know 500 milliseconds and that's something that you have to deal with um, but what's really interesting, and this is sort of going back to my experience at Google, is that your own infrastructure will take on that characteristic over time. That as your own, you know, even if even if you control the infrastructure and the wiring of your own internal networks, over time, um, as they scale, they will actually start to look like the cloud. I mean, the reason the, cl the cloud systems look like that is that inevitably, it's it's impossible to have some uh, infrastructure at scale that doesn't have that characteristic. Um, so it's actually, I think one of the advantages of the cloud is that it forces you into the discipline of living in that environment while you're still relatively small um, yep. and can um, you know, it's, it's much more manageable to d live with those um, unpredictable latencies um, when you get um, much bigger of course and your co your software is more complex if you suddenly move to the cloud or your infrastructure grows to the point where it starts getting these characteristics um, you're in for a nasty shock. Um, so you're sort of future-proofing yourself by um, doing that early and, and biting the bullet and understanding that um, there's some pain there. Um, but by living on something like EC2 or, or one of the other cloud solutions, um, it's really great discipline to have to live in that world where uh, not only do you have uh, unpredictable latency, but you know unreliable hardware. Uh, if you build software that's componentized and will occasionally, you know, understands that, yeah. Um, pieces will fail, infrastructure will fail underneath it, then you end up with a much, much more robust system. And in yeah. the long term, I think it's a, that's a huge win. Absolutely. Co configuration management is key as well. Yeah, yeah, so right, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when, when I talk to um, entrepreneurs who are just getting started, they often ask um, sort of fundamental platform questions. What database should I use? What programming environment should I use? What framework should I use? And um, uh, it's been, I guess it's been my experience that, um, particularly on the languages and framework side, that um, while some languages have, or frameworks have a reputation for scaling problems and so on, that that's almost never actually the case, that it's the way those frameworks are applied, it's they're being wrong, applied to the wrong problem domain, it's programmers who have no business writing Java, writing Java, whatever it happens to be. Um, and, um, uh, and since you both mentioned Ruby, uh, I, I guess Ruby is, the most recent sort of victim of the you know programming environment X doesn't scale. Yeah. You know, just without getting too much into what can be a religious debate, I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts on Ruby and scaling and and whether it's a sort of an unfair characteristics that Rails or Ruby either one is fundamentally scaling challenged. Yeah, I think there's actually a strong distinction be to be drawn between Rails and Ruby. I actually think Ruby's fine. Um, it's essentially a general purpose programming language just like any other and you can write great code and you can write terrible code in it and if you write terrible code in it then you're gonna feel pain. Um, Rails on the other hand I think 
you know, they, it's opinionated software, right? And um, its opinions are around rapid application development, and it's great for that. So in the early going, Rails will save you huge amounts of time, and, and you'll be very efficient with it. Um, but that comes at a cost, which is that it's it generalizes a whole bunch of stuff that for you know high performance high scale applications just isn't a really good idea so if you're on rails you're either going to have to move away from rails when you scale up or you're going to have to do some fairly major surgery uh, inside the rails framework itself or or work around it in your application but one way or the other you're going to you're going to feel some pain around that um, so we're actually look, taking a fairly long, hard look right now at whether Rails is in our future or, or to what extent it is. Um, Ruby, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Ruby. I think Ruby's fine. There's, you know, there are some metaprogramming things you can do in Ruby that are probably not a great idea. Um, but again, that's, you know, it's easy enough to avoid that. Um, simplicity is a tremendous virtue. I completely agree there. Um, so another uh, aspect of, of scaling, um, has to do with how we deal with this kind of incredibly um, heterogeneous mobile world. Mm. You know, mm. um, tons of users with Android phones and iPhones and Blackberries and Symbian phones. And um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how, how you're thinking about mobile and how you're making choices about kind of what platforms to be on, scaling expertise inside your teams, all of that. Yeah, that, that's something I could say a little bit about because we've been sort of going through that the past year as well. Uh, mobile has been like huge contributor to our growth, by the way. So investing in sort of native iOS and Android apps is like absolutely key on that end, especially if you're going to do things like record audio, which you basically can't do in a web app. So we, we're stuck with the, with the native ones. Um, to that point, we just recently launched, like actually after the native apps, we launched uh, an HTML5 app as well, because you can't really live without that uh, either. If you're a site like us, people are going to find links on Twitter, for example, and they're going to click on those links, and those links have to work and work really fast in the browser. Um, there, uh, we, we gained some really interesting knowledge uh, around sort of developing HTML5 mobile apps and desktop apps as well. Uh, we're going to share that now. We're going to start like an article series on our backstage blog. I think we're, we're really cutting edge actually on that, on, on the m.soundcloud.com site. Uh, we're doing basically test-driven JavaScript there. If that's interesting for somebody, it's, it's, it's a very interesting stack we're using there. So um, yeah, uh, stay tuned for those posts. I just heard from our devs, we have five posts lined up. So that's going to be cool. Um, so yeah, so the mobile web app is, is absolutely key. And I think that's going to be the primary thing going forward. HTML5 um, is getting huge adoption across the platforms. Uh, for us, we did fairly extensive research around um, native mobile apps uh, very recently. And we um, came again back to the sort of more or less gut feeling uh, decision of sticking with uh, iPhone and Android for now because they are by far have the majority of the users and they also have the kind of users that would uh, that would typically engage and do thing interesting things in a mobile environment or mobile app environment. So compared to when, when we talk with guys like Nokia, they you know they claim to have 200 million smartphones out there, which you know may be true. But the thing is, how many of those people have a data plan? How many of those people have 
the right sort of mindset to start sharing audio uh, on the go. If you've tried one of the no recent Nokia's so-called smartphones, they're they're not as smart uh, as. Here in the U.S., no one's no one's tried it. <laughs> All right. So, so and that's another thing as well. I mean, so our biggest country is the U.S., and so yeah, there are a number of factors to that. But basically, um, in the meantime, now all of these companies come to us, and they have very very big marketing budgets, uh, and they 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 want to have apps. So, so you know, that's kind of our strategy for now, uh, being very sort of sharply focused on those two platforms, Android and, and iOS. I would recommend the same. I would actually recommend to start developing an Android uh, app before iOS. That's, yeah. Hmm. Uh, so I can't talk about Sunkick's specific mobile strategy in terms of platforms, partly because my CEO, Hyen, is standing at the back and will kill me if I do. Uh, so let me talk in terms of my... My CEO is not here. <laughs> yeah, so well, you're... Yeah. See, that's, that's, a, that's a good trick. Suffice to say, it's Nokia-centric. Yeah. <laughs> we are not Nokia-centric. Um, uh, but uh, um, uh, actually, I did a bunch of work at Google um, on mobile apps um, in, in a past life. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would echo a lot of what Eric said. Um, there's, it's interesting. Uh, so certainly today, um, it's pretty clear that Android and iOS are the only platforms really worth considering, um, in my opinion. Um, they're both good, but they are some, particularly um, iOS, fairly, you know, specialist skills. Um, What's interesting is it's not as specialist as it used to be. If you even look back a couple of years, um, really to build a decent iOS app, there were relatively few people who had the skill set to do that. It really was something that was, um, you know, the realm of, uh, you know, a handful of people who were great programmers in that world. Um, what certainly at Google we saw was that we were we got to the situation about a year, eighteen months ago, where we were able to pick good general um, programmers and throw them at mobile apps and they would do a really good job of it. Um, and we just basically abandoned hiring for mobile specialists and just used generalist programmers. And I think the world has changed in terms of SDKs and just sort of general awareness of the issues around mobile to a sufficient extent that you really can take generalist teams and within a relatively short amount of time, uh, they can be extremely productive on those platforms, which I think is a really um, useful change from the for, for startups who, for whom you know going out and hiring specialists in these areas is just not an option. Um, so that's, uh, I think, a, a piece of really good news in the in the mobile world. Um, I would actually agree that I think starting on Android. I mean, let me you know, <laughs> I have an obvious bias here being an ex Googler, but um, I actually think that starting on Android is, is pretty smart. A because it's fairly clear that Android is starting to pull away from iOS in terms of market share, but more importantly because um, because it's Java, it's actually that it's a more familiar skill set for a large number of programmers out there. So it's an easier step for somebody coming out of the general Java world to get up to speed on Android quickly and build something there. Um, and that, I think, is uh, a re reason enough in itself to start with uh, Android. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting from a scaling perspective, though. So we're, we're likely later this year to spin up a separate mobile team. Um, specifically to live in that world. Not so much from the sort of technical skill set perspective, but because 
they'll there's a real product focus around building great um, mobile applications. The, the, the constraints in mobile are sufficiently different from those in the web, at least today, um, and for the next few years, I suspect that you you need to think differently about how you craft the product, um, particularly from the user experience perspective. Um, you can't just kind of shrink down your web UI and expect it to work well on a mobile device. Um, it's much more complex than that. Um, and so we think that's an area where having a, a group of people dedicated to that, both on the product and the engineering side, is going to pay off a great deal for us. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys, is that how you approach um, mobile development as, as kind of a separate team from your main web development? Yeah, so we have very much the philosophy of sort of one shared platform and then we have very small agile teams. Um, and, and I think the big benefit, I mean, it's, it's of course, it's very painful having to, you know, keep all of these platforms in, in parity with each other. Um, but I think the benefit to that is really sort of the evolutionary aspect that you can you can test something small. So you know you could even test things like localization in, let's say, the iPhone app um, before you do it anywhere else, and you can see how that something like that would fly. And you can do it with a very small team. So I actually learned that, uh, which is a bit backwards, but our iOS team is actually bigger than the Facebook <laughs> iOS team. So um, you can you can do it with very small teams. We have. So we have a desktop app as well. So we have three and a half people now in total working on both desktop and, and iOS. But we like to keep these things in-house because we, a lot of people outsource these things, but I, I, I really wouldn't want to do that because the, the user experience is so key to us that we want to keep this, this in-house. But it's really nice to have like you know, two, two developers on, on Android, two developers on iOS, two developers on mobile. And they can, you know, they can. So, for example, our mobile app, our HTML5 app, was basically from conception to launch was less than two months. Uh, so, I mean, it's they can work really fast and it can be very agile, which is which is cool. Actually, we're <coughs> we're about to switch over to uh, to questions. So, start thinking about your <coughs> your sex advice questions for these guys. Um, but um, before we uh, before we do that. Um, I, th there is this whole dimension of scaling that's about how do you scale the organization. You guys have started to talk about it, about the way you're organizing your mobile teams. Um, you know, uh, I, this is another thing that I get asked a lot by, by entrepreneurs who are working on scaling their companies is sort of how do you go from the team, the small team of, you know, maybe kind of generalist, super, super productive into a team that, that has more specialization. I guess I'm just curious about how you're thinking about hiring and training and organization and leadership and um, how is that working and, and what are you learning? Yeah, I think scaling the organization is by far and away the hardest thing for a company to do. Um, Songkick is my, I think, sixth startup, if I'm counting correctly. Um, and I've seen uh, both startups that I've been in and, and start, uh, other startups around me, um, more of them die because they've been unable to scale the organization than almost any other cause. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a startup killer. Um, and it, what's interesting is that there are certain inflection points, really critical inflection points that you get as you move up in organizational size. Um, and one of the reasons that I was really excited to join Sunkick was that, you know, at the beginning of this year, we were right at the on the cusp of one of those inflection points and it's it's really 
an interesting experience to try and take a team through that. Uh, and if you can be successful with it, I think it can, you know, it can secure the company's future. Um, so we're, we're right at the point where we have a, a single, essentially, you know, one team um, operating within the engineering organization. Um, and, you know, if we add one or two more folks to it, it'll be too big to manage as a single team. And we need to start splitting it up into um, separate sub-teams. And how many people? Um, w well, today we have uh, 11 engineers. Um, I think we could probably add one um, before we would be forced to go into separate teams. Um, but what's interesting is... Um, it's not just the team size, but actually we're also that, uh, at an inflection point in terms of the company uh, and the sort of business strategy. Because we've seen this sudden uh, explosion of growth and because we've obviously found a formula, a basic sort of core formula that works really well for our users, suddenly that enables us to say, okay, what are all the value-added um, pieces of service that we can construct around this successful core to really start to grow into the next phase of of the company and move out from being that sort of startup that's looking for its magic formula into the one that's executing really well against that formula, um, which is a really tough transition to do, but it but it does enable us to grow in all sorts of dimensions. Um, so as a good example of this, um, we're looking, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that we're looking to um, start to serve artists more directly as well as fans. So our core focus will still be on the fan experience, but now we will also be able to start to build specific applications and services directed at artists, which is a great complement to our core service. Um, and we're able to do that because we're, we, we found this level of success. Um, but that mean, but that's such a different product from the core fan-facing piece that it makes a huge amount of sense to have a team that's dedicated to artist services, and that's both on the product side, on the business development side, um, and on the engineering side. Uh, and so there's a really kind of natural split there that we can make and say, um, built on top of our API, and again, you know, having a having that strong, well-defined API is really critical to making this successful. So we have a core back-end team who are building the, sort of the core underlying services, an API that sits on top of that, and then on top of that API, we can build value-added services, whether that's mobile applications, um, potentially the web site itself, um, and then, for example, in our case, the artist services piece as well. Um, and so that's... Uh, an organizational shift that we're going through this year, um, if we can successfully execute that, I think that we'll end up um, being able to grow the company and not kind of falling over ourselves, which is what tends to happen if you aren't prepared to um, sort of put these hard lines in place. But that's actually really difficult, right? Because um, suddenly people who are used to understanding everything that's going on in the company, uh, who, who are, you know, are able to feel responsibility for every aspect of the of what they're building, suddenly these people um, now are siloed off into smaller pieces. Um, and so helping the team transition through that and understand why that's necessary and how they continue to have career growth and exciting projects to work on and a strong sense of ownership of the pieces that they sort of, the, the piece that they're, they're given to, to, to be within is a, is a really difficult transition. And, and the reason this is hard um, is because technology is easy, right? I mean, anyone can figure out technical problems. Um, people are really difficult. <laughs> um, and so this is, this is all about, you know, personal aspirations, goals, dreams, um, and, and career prospects for the individuals in the team. And that's much hairier, more complex, more unknowable, full of variables, full of irrationality, um, full of unexpressed desires um, than technology will ever have. And that's a really hard and interesting problem. Um, okay. 
Clearly, Sorry. we could we could talk about yeah, scaling yeah, the organization good, for another hour. Yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe since we've done this panel on scaling the technology for three years running here, next year we should do scaling the organization. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Linda here has a microphone and got hands coming up, so I'll let her pick someone to to grab the mic to start us off. Uh, I have questions for both of you. I guess I'll start. I'll start with Eric. Um, have you guys built an HTML5 audio recording widget? I heard a rumor, maybe. Yeah, that's an interesting rumor because it's not <laughs> possible in the browser today. But yeah. uh, you can do it with Flash. Yeah, so yeah. So we're, we, we've done yeah. that using Flash. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. I, I'm happy to explain exactly how we did that because I was personally involved. <laughs> you were talking a little bit about the magic formula, and I know you, you perhaps don't want to indulge into the minutiae of how that hockey stick started to go up. Sure. But what I am interested to know is what tools and mechanisms do you use to discern what your users are looking for in terms of UI? Uh, you know, is it, is it just analytics that you, and objectively are you measuring these things or are you polling your users or was it just that mm. you tweaked and dot the dials and you hit, you sort of hit your eureka moment? Mm. I, can, I can say one thing that was a kind of a eureka moment recently was a <coughs> service called usertesting.com. I can recommend that to everybody here if you're running any sort of web application. Um, it's a great way to just sort of uh, define maybe three, four, five tasks and then just uh, get, you know, 10 random people execute those tasks while actually speaking in the microphone and, and sort of uh, talking about what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and that brought us like instantly like a bullet list of 30 things we need to improve in our on our site. So that was a huge Eureka moment recently. I, and I'm personally, I'm much more sort of interested in getting that sort of qualitative feedback from something um, than to get metrics around it. I mean, we're doing a bunch of those things as well, but I think the sort of when you actually hear somebody like hmm why is this button there or why am I not <laughs> finding this just like those fine things is, is so much yeah, like it's super valuable so yeah that's key thing yeah I, I agree both generally and specifically about user testing.com it, it is a great resource um, <coughs> we have a mixture of things um, absolutely analytics I think that's really critical um, because you can learn a set of things from there um, but also we do a lot of usability testing we do a lot of user surveys um, uh, so you know it's a combination it's both the qualitative and the quantitative and, and seeing both sides of that is really important you can't have one or the other you have to have both do you guys use MapReduce to uh, do your analytics and if so how do you deal with the scaling the elastic scaling that MapReduce adds on top of the already the platform load that you're already carrying just to serve mm. So yeah, we, we've done a bunch of things with the with the Amazon stuff around Elastic MapReduce. So so that we've done for for some one-off things. We're we're now kind of in the process of setting up a, a permanent installation of yeah um, distributed file or like data store with MapReduce capabilities. So yeah, we're we're going to do that. Yeah, yeah we don't yet. Um, uh, we've done a little bit of experimenting with it, but nothing serious. Um, I could definitely see us getting to the point in the not too distant future where that would make a lot of sense, but yeah. we haven't done it today. I mean, one detail point there is, I mean, the Elastic MapReduce stuff at Amazon is fantastic, so that, that I can really recommend. Um, the, the other interesting thing with Amazon is you can basically, using their VPN stuff, you can connect the cloud with your bare metal infrastructure. So you could run, um, let's say, uh, bare metal uh, core set of servers, uh, and then you can extend that sort of based on the 
on the load, you could extend it within your own network with the sort of virtual extension of it. So, so that's that's really cool. And you can even use the spot instances that they have. So you pay a fixed price, and then yeah. So there's all kinds of things you can do there, which is pretty cool. Hey, I'm curious on the uh, kind of the Android versus iOS debate. It's refreshing to hear you guys say to start with Android, since that's not what uh, I have been hearing. We didn't actually start with Android. We would have done that if we did that today. If you started now, we started right? with iOS, but there was a while back. So. But uh, even you know, recently I've heard people say iOS is easier because there are fragmentation issues with Android, and also that they give you a bit more of a business model. So for people that are trying to monetize or sell an app or sell something within the app, that they still prefer iOS. So I'm curious if you guys can talk to both of those. Is fragmentation really that big of a problem, building for a blur versus an incredible or whatever? And are you seeing monetization opportunities on Android as well? I, I don't. I think the fragmentation issue only really matters if you're doing certain very high performance um, applications. Um, games uh, would be an obvious example. I'm not Where sure about that, actually. We've you think had so? a lot of fragmentation stuff coming up, yeah. So that, that is. That is but, but is that specifically around um, uh, the audio capabilities on the devices? Uh, no, not mm, just audio. It's audio definitely is, is an issue as well. Right. But screen sizes, all kinds of things. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Um, so, yeah, there's a difference of opinion. Um, uh, in terms of monetization, I think you're seeing that gap closing. I think there's still a better story on the Apple platform. Um, but I actually think that's that that's becoming a smaller issue yeah. um, and I expect that I don't know exactly how far out but my guess is you know somewhere around the end of this year that will yeah. essentially be a non-issue but the reason to pick Android first is the reach aspect that's that's the big yeah. hi um, I'm just curious uh, how you consider the viability of a hosted framework like uh, Google App Engine compared to what you guys have set up now? Uh, where are you? Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, can you repeat oh, the question quickly? Uh, so, sorry, Google uh, App Engine versus... Yeah, uh, well, I was just uh, wondering how, uh, how you would think uh, a hosted framework, like an all-in-one framework like Google App Engine, how well would it scale compared to something that's a little bit more custom? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can say something quickly to that point is Google App Engine has a, a kind of a ridiculous lock-in effect. So that, that would be one, one thing. Google App Engine is an I mean, amazing piece of technology, especially the, the data layer is really great because it forces you into scaling from the start. So you're using the right sort of approach to accessing the data, which means you can scale you know, up to millions of users with a, an app that you built relatively quickly. So that's... That's really cool with App, App Engine, but um, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole spectrum of services out there, and I think App Engine is probably the most constrained from an application programming model, mm. um, right down to essentially you know running your own your own hardware and your own infrastructure where you've got complete freedom. Um, and I think you need to choose the right tool for the right job. Um, we use App Engine occasionally for sort of small internal tools because it's so quick to get something up and running and deploy. Um, but for sort of webs. For, for web applications, I, I agree. It's probably you know it's too constrained. Its model is too specific. Yeah. Um, and then you know you at that point you want to step down towards something more like EC2, where you've got much more freedom, yeah. or, or even beyond that. But 
Yeah, I can see what we use internally in the meantime is mostly Heroku. And the reason for that is then you can easily step over to something like EC2 if you need something specific or if the costs become an issue, you can go to EC2 and then from there you can go to bare metal. So it's that's a very sort of painless transition. And so Heroku, I can recommend, it's amazing. Tom, you've been a, uh, an exceptionally humble moderator. It'd be good to hear some Pandora thoughts. <laughs> I think we're out of time, folks. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, well, uh, you know, we've been through um, seven, well, six years of, of scaling. Um, uh, I'll tell you that um, our approach to it from the beginning has been pretty pragmatic. We had a few servers in Iraq somewhere, and we launched the service, and it had a 10 megabit Ethernet connection. Um, I decided to up that to 100 megabit because I thought we were going to go through the roof. Um, uh, it took about two weeks for us to, to become perilously close to that 100 megabit limit. Um, I remember sitting and watching the bandwidth graphs in the middle of the night wondering what exactly would happen when we got to 100 megabits. Um, and it uh, uh, turned out that the data center we had um, sold me a gigabit connection but could only give me 500 megabits and I found that out about three days before we were going to hit 600 megabits and uh, had to move us out of the data center and um, just by luck uh, stumbled upon the guys at Equinix who have been our home all over the country um, ever since. Um, we've actually built all of the infrastructure ourselves. We do all of our st the streaming ourselves. We do all, we host all of the, uh, uh, the servers. Um, got an incredible team that does that. Um, uh, you know, fast forward to, you know, 80 million users and 10 billion thumbs. It's been a pretty crazy ride. Um, I guess I'd say one thing that, that um, uh, the conversation spurred in me was um, I'm thinking a lot about how to scale the team, um, how to, you know, to, to get more done and to, to, you know, satisfy the career development goals of all the great people who work in my organization. And um, the... Uh, um, one thing that um, that Dan said that really I think is true is that when you're in a phase where almost everything you do is unproven hypothesis, you know, having a small team that, you know, full of generalists where you can put all of their energy into, oh my God, we have this website with some users, how are we ever going to make any money, what's the ad model and so on, and then it seems like there's an opportunity in mobile, you can take everybody and focus them on iOS for a while, and then Android comes along and starts to grow really fast, and you can point everybody at, that's been incredible, what's allowed us to, you know, build everything you know about Pandora with, you know, on the order of, of 17 software developers for almost the entire history of the company. Um, Did you build an iOS app with 17 software developers? Well, we built an iOS app with one software developer who had never written a line of Macintosh or iOS code. So. Um, uh, he's amazing, but um, uh, you know you can do all of these things if if you know if you really want to. Um, and I'd say that we are now in this phase where we have some some hypotheses that look to be true. It looks like we know how to make some money through advertising on the web. It looks like we know how to build an interesting mobile experience. Um, and uh, and I think that that becomes a really great moment to rationalize more specialization, so that you can you can put a team on the web experience or on the advertising products or on the mobile experiences and just let them play out that whole opportunity. Um, and so we're kind of in the middle of that 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 process now. So um, if you want to come and uh, and work on Pandora with us, let me know. I think we're out of time, but thank you. <laughs>